This is the Observer Podcast. Our dedication to in-depth reporting, journalistic innovation, and honest dialogue has remained intact for over a century. Today, we offer insightful news analysis, cogent and diverse opinion pieces, and lively reviews and analysis of current arts, entertainment, and cultural trends. Through poignant writing and artistic elegance, we aim to entertain, inform, and above all, challenge the Tufts community to effect positive change. Our podcasts will have segments found both in the magazine and only in this podcast. We present Pleasure. Anonymous students share stories of faked pleasure. Many are very funny, but beyond the humor, they all reveal something about the state of sex culture for college students. Here are five of my favorite stories. Better question, have I ever not faked an orgasm? No, sad life of a straight girl. I have never orgasmed. There, I said it. I have experienced pleasure both by myself and with partners, but I've never gotten to that point. And it honestly sucks. Both mentally and physically, and even socially, I want to so badly. I never really started becoming intimate with myself or other people until later in high school, and after I had gone on SSRIs, where the most common side effect is, yep, you guessed it, making it harder to orgasm, especially for people with vaginas. Lucky me. It's been really interesting because I do enjoy myself, both when I'm watching The L Word or with someone that makes me feel good. And I think at this point, the reason I still can't is because I'm scared. I've never been truly able to relinquish control of myself when I'm with someone. Maybe that's because I've never actually been comfortable enough or attracted enough or enjoying myself enough. But now it seems like this giant thing in my life that I so badly want to go away. It almost feels like my virginity. Something I just need to get over with so I can stop stressing about it. Shitty, I know. But what's so interesting is that is what makes it so hard to do. I've talked to my gynecologist, my doctor, my therapist, and many, many friends. I've consulted a great podcast if people are interested. It's called How Come. And I really think at this point it's just on me and the timing and the person, or not, and the place and the weather. I truly think I won't be able to orgasm until I stop thinking about it. I want to view my pleasure as a continuous presence in my life, not something I have to do. At one point, masturbating felt like a job, so I stopped. Because it shouldn't be a job. I should be able to feel good even if I don't orgasm. But more than anything, I want to feel comfortable with myself so that I can let go and actually be able to experience it. Every time with my ex. I was convinced I was in love with him, so I felt compelled to. One time, I faked an orgasm to go to class. I don't think it worked. I dated a guy for a year, then we broke up, dated for another year, broke up for three years, just started dating him again. I'm a backslider, but that's not the point. Altogether, we've probably dated for what, two plus years, hooked up maybe hundreds of times. I really shouldn't be able to count how many times I legitimately finished with him on one hand, but that is the case, and he has absolutely no idea. I almost feel like since I got in the pattern of faking it for him, I can't stop because it's become a habit, but also because it would crush him if I told him what he's doing just isn't and hasn't gotten me there. What does this say about me? Why am I prioritizing his pleasure over mine? His sense of masculine confidence over my sexual satisfaction? He finishes every goddamn time, and the few instances where he hasn't, I was taken over by a sense of my own failure to get him there. On my end, it feels like an incomplete sexual act when he doesn't come, a break in our sexual flow, and yet I basically don't finish ever. 
I started faking it because I knew he liked to see the pleasure he was giving me. Maybe an idea I picked up from the constantly groaning women in porn at the expense of my actual pleasure. I barely even try anymore, and for me, getting to climax is a super mental thing. So if I tap out and don't put myself in the right headspace, it's just not going to happen. I'd like to think that I've improved as a communicator in sexual relationships, asking for what I need for my partner, but the sex thing feels different, and I don't know how to get myself out of this loop my relationship is stuck in. These stories share a thread of expectation. Students felt compelled to come, felt compelled to fake an orgasm because their partner wasn't pleasuring them after multiple years together. These stories are a reminder that we all have societal expectations of sex, what it should do, mean, and feel. We're taught about sex via TV shows, movies, and porn. We're not taught to trust ourselves and what we desire. Especially as women, we're not taught to prioritize our own wants and needs. Sex should not be any one thing. It can be funny and awkward, sad and incredible. It is essentially and incredibly human. There's the medieval romantic tale of two lovers that were not meant to be, Tristan and Isolde. This story was revolutionary in the sense that it was one of the first, if not the first, love story. Following its circulation, a newfound notion of love and sensuality was born in a society that previously placed no importance on love in marriage. Tristan and Isolde are victims of a love potion that makes them fall deeply and passionately in love. As a result, they find themselves inseparable, passionately attracted to each other, but miserable because they are stripped of their own will, their lives increasingly placed in more and more danger as a result of having to hide their bond from Isolde's husband. When the spell wears off, they become aware of a love not centered around the potion, and then they go separate ways, always longing for each other, always keeping that passion they felt before alive. The story poses the fundamental question, what is love and what does a love without passion look like? Can love be the fruit of passion alone? A chicken and egg paradox, whether love before passion or passion before love, it made me wonder, in our world, through film and popular media, love and passion are often painted as inseparable, but we know that's not always the case. For example, in the context of love for friends and family, the critic of Tristan and Isolde claimed that passion is a result of pain from longing for another person. His argument for the two lovers not really loving each other is that they were more infatuated with that feeling of passion, that feeling before climax, because being together obviously meant the end of that feeling. As college students, our perception of love and pleasure are constantly changing in our very unique environment. I know my thoughts and what love means to me has drastically changed since being here. So today I'm having a mini discussion of what some students' idea of love is aside from pleasure. I have a friend with me today here. Hi, Leah. Hi. Do you think romantic love is placed on a pedestal? I think it is in some ways. Um, we've discussed before how like one of the first depictions of love that we see growing up is, especially for women, princesses. That's true. Um, and I think we're kind of raised, and this is like a common idea, that um, that is the kind of love that we should seek to find. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that non-romantic forms of love are given equal representation at that age. Um, we do, I think that's changing for sure. I mean, we do have a lot of shows now that like center friendship and family. Um, yeah, like Frozen kind of. Right? right, yeah, definitely. But I do think that, especially in our generation and in the same age, that's still something that's very prevalent. Okay. What are the fundamentally important things um, that are important to you for love? Loving somebody, being loved. 
I know it's a bit of a broad question, but mm -hmm. maybe if I asked you in simple terms what your love language is, I, I know you've probably heard of that before. Mm -hmm. um, I think since coming to school, it's definitely changed a lot, like you mentioned. Uh, in terms of friendships, which I guess is kind of our chosen family here, mm -hmm. um, my love language is definitely people noticing um, how I'm feeling or certain things about me specifically. I really love to like learn about myself through how my friends see me because there's definitely a lot of things that I feel like I miss or think that people don't pick up on. Um, it's definitely the standard things like loyalty, um, caring. Um, yeah, those are definitely main ones for me. So I guess to come back to the theme of pleasure, um, and we're trying to tie it back to love, what are some ways that on campus you see that representation of the two existing together? Of pleasure and love pleasure existing Pleasure and together. love, yes. It's interesting. I feel like a lot of people talk about hookup culture. Oh, yeah, it's pretty um, good, yeah. Right. So I think I more often see pleasure without love, mm. and that being something that's like more realistic. Um, I don't know if that's just... It's definitely like my, a little more widely accepted. Yeah, here. my own personal experience, but... Um, that's definitely changed even within like our Tufts, our years at Tufts. Mm -hmm. I think as we got older, like people have moved kind of away from that. Right. Um, but yeah, I think it's a little bit more taboo to talk about. I don't say taboo, but, um, a little bit more out of the ordinary to talk about love without pleasure. Right. Um, especially because I don't know what this, right. if at this point that there is an equal amount of people in long-term relationships or in relationships, like romantic relationships, yep. Um, people tend to stay away from them a little bit in college, I think, undergrad yeah. especially. Yeah, especially the first two years. Mm -hmm. So I could see how maybe like one person in a friend group who's in a long-term relationship would feel kind of uncomfortable discussing, for example, like non, I don't say not the pleasure parts, but would feel comfortable talking about purely the romantic part of their relationship when all of their friends right. are not in a similar place. Do you think that romance is inherently tied to pleasure? I know, because I know we say, like, the romantic parts of a relationship, does that, do you think that means, like, having pleasure present? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people talk about different things that are romantic that don't involve pleasure. Um, and I know that there are a lot of people who don't find the two to be, like, linked all the time. Just to clarify, this is, pleasure is at least in the sexual context. Right. Right. Um, we were talking about this earlier as well, but there are people who start off as friends mm -hmm. and find things that are like, find that kind of love, that mm -hmm. love that's separate from romance right. um, before they find anything romantic or physical. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's not necessarily like physical pleasure, then romance. It can be like love in a friendship and then romance and then pleasure or however that goes. So I don't think that they're always linked mm -hmm. or that it always has Mutually to go that exclusive. way. Right. Yeah. yeah. How, what do you think? Um, I've definitely, I mean, I was talking to some people earlier today who were giving me some of their own feedback. And I think a general consensus is that, you know, when they come to school, they, they see some changes and maybe what their perception is about love. I guess we can circle back to what I started with, with Tristan and Assault. And this is, this is a very obscure story not a lot of people know it so I, I won't assume that you know it but the general the general question that I'm trying to bring out of Tristan and Assault is the love of love love because many people will argue that the two of them didn't love each other at, at any point that they at one point were in love because of the, the potions fault um, and then after that they were supposedly in love um, up for debate but many people argue that they are never in, they're never actually in love and it's mostly them being in love with the act of being in love 
right? In that sense, their understanding of love is passion and, and pain um, and longing for each other. So they're always apart and it always keeps them longing together. Um, so what do you think? Is there, is, there, is there such a thing as loving love? Especially in today's context, you know? I think there definitely is. There's, like, infatuation. And I think you hear a lot of references to, like, the honeymoon period. Or, you know, and you hear a lot of references to that as, like, something that will fade. Mm -hmm. And that, like, has a time limit. Um, And there are a lot of, like, depictions of love, especially in terms of marriage. Um, I guess less so in non-romantic situations um, where that, like, infatuation fades. And, like, the idea is whatever kind of love prevails um, is the real test of, like, your relationship right. and that romance. And I guess that, that's the question kind of that I'm trying to get at. What's the the real test of love? What are the things that are left behind, mm-hmm. right? Right. Who make, Who is your whole? Who makes you feel complete? Pleasure. Noun. The illusion of power. Before that moment on the tee, the illusion was mostly in place, or at least in place enough for you to ignore the cracks. You felt the pleasure from being in good company, which made you feel powerful and present. All it took was a few seconds on the escalator for a stranger to pin you with his gaze, for the cracks to widen into fissures, and it's okay, this happens, put your sweatshirt on, become formless, keep going. An uneventful 20 minutes later, of a figure in the shadows hidden from the streetlights, imperceptible until the last moment you were safe, but you might not have been. The fear jerked the fissures wider into chasms, and you were left plummeting downwards. Pleasure comes and goes in waves. That night, your skin fit wrong, tied on too tight, contorting from soft corners to plastic angles. You itched to escape the doll body that they had placed you in. You knew these interactions were both very small, daily occurrences, but it was the accumulation of too many little things. Micro and micro and micro snatched the eye, molded it into the first letter of a scream, and became macro, something too big to fit within the borders of your skin, but forced to remain within. Those men in the station, on the stoop, on the side of the street, almost certainly did not have bad intentions, but you will never know. You were with the trusty boyfriend. You were protected by the presence of one of their own. It made you sick. Your stomach switched places with your brain, and you tried to digest your own Pleasure can be entangling music and movement to feelings of stability, mind and body, to an eight count. The trouble with wanting to escape your own limbs is that you have been trained to intrinsically sense precisely how you comport and carry yourself. You are trained through dance, through developing body awareness. How to know the contours of your movement as they exist for others and for the mirror, to shape your limbs into convincing assemblages and break them again. Frame your face in a square with your arms, now break, break. Frame your features to be composed and confident, now break, break. Know what you look like without a mirror, because on stage there are no mirrors. How do you escape what you so meticulously built into your mind's architecture? Pleasure is often thought of as inherently spontaneous. That is a lie. Pleasure is born out of decisions, intentionality. In order to feel the pleasure of being at home within yourself, You need to be incubated, convinced. You need good conditions, a good mindset, a specific time of day, the right amount of sun, the right amount of energy. You need the absence of violence. You need to persuade yourself that you are in the absence of violence. These small gendered violences fester inside you and displace the pleasure you feel from the waves calming under your skin. Pleasure is unstable, fleetingly peeling away into disgust at the drop of a hat. 
Most of the time you are pleased by the embodied knowledge of body awareness. Not only is it essential for dance, but you ooze confidence at will. You ramp it up when you need to feel a little more powerful. But sometimes, on public transport, or walking home at night, or feeling discomfited in a particular pair of lipstick red shorts, someone from behind wraps your own marionette string around your ankles and pulls your weight out from under you. A mirror with no stage is shoved in front of you. You're forcibly reminded of how, to many people, you are only a sack of plastic fat. The illusion bursts. Your mind melts downwards through the soles of your feet. You tug back so hard on your marionette strings that your palms bleed lipstick red. You wish you didn't know precisely what you looked like. You wish you didn't know precisely how you were being viewed. You wish you didn't feel precisely how your perceived power was being siphoned out of you. Now break, break. Pleasure can be finding consolation. Places and people in which the illusion is so well constructed, you almost forget. The company of your brother could wrap warm solace around you like a mug of milky coffee, convince you there was no violence present. You often found comfort in his ignorance of the violences that befall his sister, although now you have started to worry. Sweet as a crisp gala apple, passionate about baseball, and the most sincere 16-year-old, your brother is your own pocket of innocence. Mere weeks before you were on that escalator, in the blistering heat of July, mid-game, preparing to throw the next pitch, he had to listen to the umpire, adult, figure of authority ask abruptly who the Barbie in the stands was, wonder about her age, erase, diminish, hold her down. While you are well-versed in the violences that rob you of your pleasure and personhood, you gratefully and naively assumed that your brother had been shielded from the ways of the world could reduce you. Your brother, whose ears bled at the plastification of his sister, wanted, as his immediate reaction, to make sure the umpire knew you were taken. Hearing this pulled your strings taut with anxiety and powerlessness. Though your brother does not see you as a sack of plastic fat, he can see that others do. He assumes that the only way to be safe is to be taken, to erase your agency and ability to own yourself. He knows you are not without violence. This realization broke your heart. It is still breaking your heart. When he told you about this, his voice was filled with notes of confusion. His look was imploring. You wanted to protect him from what it means to be you. You wanted to wrap him up to somehow protect him, like you always have, from the waves that were about to come rushing downwards. Pleasure cracks, breaks, crashes, takes. In order to feel pleasure, you have to convince yourself that you are powerful, but you believe yourself rarely. You need to construct the illusion, but your blueprints are vastly incomplete. What's missing is the foundation. Nowhere is completely without violence. Nowhere is completely safe. Nowhere will you feel completely your own, unless you have thoroughly plastered up the cracks in the illusion, unless you convince yourself that you truly are powerful. Pleased, I'm sure. Thank you for listening. Tell us about a time you faked an orgasm was written and produced by Carrie Haynes and featured Rebecca Hendrickson, Caroline Blanton, and Ethan Lipson. Is the Love of Love Love was produced by Aureli Mancia. The Cracks in the Illusion was produced by Jamie Dew, written and read by Kalila Weiner, and featured Justice Washington. 
The Observer Podcast is executive produced by Ethan Lipson. 